Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking to David Ireland, Co-Founder and Director at The Growth Drivers. Welcome, David. G'day. Thanks for having me, James. Okay, so I'm kind of going to let you introduce yourself up to a point, but Growth Drivers is obviously kind of a commercialization research translation company. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Did you want me to give you an intro? I guess I'm interested to know, given your background, you have an extensive academic background, but you've got an extensive sort of entrepreneurial translation history as well. So I wonder if you can just walk through what were the motivators firstly to get dual PhD in innovation and drug design, but then to move into quite different areas of commercialization? Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, not surprising I get this question a bit. Like, to be totally honest, it initially came about because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something in both science and business. And so I thought, well, why not do both, right? So I did dual science and business degrees and then did the dual PhD. In hindsight, it was an excellent decision because it's allowed me to navigate both the world of science and deep technology and research, but also the world of you know, how do you translate that and turn that into a business that can go on and have, you know, impact, you know, through products and services or whatever it might be. And so I was a researcher for a little while. I worked in tech transfer for a little while and helped. And that was a great job. Worked at a place called UniQuest and helped set up a number of businesses, raise money, license technologies. And it was a really good training ground for me. And then moved to CSIRO where I was head of innovation systems and international for a few years. And that was just a wonderful experience doing big innovation policy work in Australia, in CSIRO, and managing relationships with big R&D agencies around the world. And then after that, I've moved out and I've worked in innovation consulting and recently set up this business with some other people called The Growth Drivers. And yeah, like you said, it's a innovation, commercialization, translation type service. And we work with organizations, both public, private research institutions and not-for-profits and help them do everything from product and service design to strategy, culture change, you know, capital raising, go-to-market planning, all of that stuff, all the way through to helping leaders build some of the skills they need to do the innovation or the entrepreneurship or navigate some of those big challenges they're facing. So, yeah, it's kind of driven partly by this curiosity that I have and I I kind of see problems and I go, well, nobody else has had a go at fixing that, so why don't I have a go? (laughs) Yeah, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Particularly on the translation side, but this goes across the business as well. If you're interested in an area of research, I would imagine personally want to see that research have maximum impact. And part of that is obviously translating it into an environment where people can access it, which would be the commercial world. Yeah, look, and I think initially a lot of my interest was in the areas where I was technically skilled and those technical skills were in drug design. And so, you know, some of the early stuff I did was in that space. But over the years, like I've helped build aquaculture businesses and renewable energy businesses and behavior change businesses and fintech businesses, right? And it's 
gradually my skill set or my technical skills have moved from like that kind of research science base to just having an understanding of how do you go out and build a business that is solving a problem that somebody cares about enough to pay you for it, right? And so I play this role of bringing in the technology and the people and structuring it and raising the capital and hiring the people and then moving on. And so recently I've stepped more into the venture capital space and kind of doing that a bit more structured as opposed to just either doing it myself or being an angel investor and helping other people do it. But yeah. Yeah, I'm very fascinated that you were at UniQuest. I guess you'd call it way back in the day now, but UniQuest is a real jewel in the crown as far as that style organization in this country, particularly in pharmaceuticals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was tremendously successful. And I look around the system and a lot of the people that I'm meeting, whether they're in tech transfer or they're in venture or they're doing startups or that, you know, some part of this ecosystem have spent time at UniQuest at some point in their career as well. So it was a tremendous training ground full of really talented people. And off the back of some of those big successes, they were able to help us do a lot of cool things. So, yeah. So let me ask you, I'm always interested in the inputs on successes. I mean, you're looking at it from a distance now, but when you look at UniQuest at the time, what was it about that organization that enabled it to be as successful as it was? I mean, these things are never luck, but they're often, you know, there's serendipity involved. Yeah, absolutely. We wrote, I mean, this is going way back, but one of the um, general managers there at the time, a guy called Joe McLean, he and I wrote a paper for one of the many calls that the government put out for like, how do we do innovation better in this country? And so we wrote on behalf of UniQuest and we said one of the things that allowed UniQuest to be successful was that it was allowed to fail and that UQ had made this long-term investment. UniQuest as an entity had been set up and had been given this pretty much the same mandate for like 25 years, right? And so it had the time to learn, well, how do we do this? You know, how do we build businesses? How do we spin back the research into the research community? How do we build the capabilities of the research community so that they're driving the types of outcomes that we need? How do we create relationships with other venture firms and whatever else? And that kind of notion of being allowed to fail meant that it had time to learn how to succeed. And you compare that to some of the other tech transfer agencies at the time with other universities that every three years, the uni would look at it and go, well, you haven't done enough, so we'll cancel it and we'll start again with something else. And we just know that innovation takes time. You have to fail before you can succeed. And a lot of the new methodology when you're looking at startups is about how do you bring failure really early on in the journey where you haven't exposed yourself to big risk, you haven't spent a lot of time and money. And that's kind of what UniQuest was doing for 20 years as it was building all those methodologies and the structures to be able to be successful. That's very interesting that you think that there's kind of an alumni that you bump into around the country. I want to ask you about CSIRO, that you were there for five years or so, and subsequently you worked, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, quite closely on the ON program, the kind of science entrepreneurship program within the, the agency. That would have been a period of quite dramatic change at CSIRO culturally, but just talk us through that. Yeah, it was. It was. So when I joined, Megan Clark was chief executive and she, like, I think these things kind of happen with pendulums. And so she was less focused on commercialization. I think this is fair to say, less focused on commercialization than what Larry was when he came in. And so we were starting to, like a lot of the innovation focus that we had at the time was kind of at the innovation policy level, supporting governments. We were a bit more traditional in what we were doing. And then Larry came along and all of a sudden there was this much stronger focus towards commercialization and how do we get the research out into the hands of the people? 
and through a process of building businesses as opposed to just working as a collaborator with industry. I don't want to sound like I'm being disparaging at at all to Megan because she was wonderful. And so as Larry came in, there were all these new initiatives that started to spin up. And one of those was how do we build the capabilities of entrepreneurs in Australia, but also start to build the environment that deep tech entrepreneurs like researchers can be supported by to successfully get their research into the hands of people in the form of products and services. And the model that we looked at was the i model. And, you know, I say we, but I, I was one of many people within CSRO who were doing it. And there were some brilliant people that really took the lead on that program in the early days and helping to build it and test it. And I left CSRO soon after that program kicked off and then came back probably 12 months later and started helping design other programs within the on thing and started to deliver the Accelerate program and a few other things that they had too. And it's been a tremendously successful program over the years. I mean, I don't know the numbers exactly, but thousands of researchers from across Australia have gone into it and learned how to think differently about path to impact. They've made 100 companies, $500 million plus of venture funding has been raised, hundreds and hundreds of jobs have come out of it. And probably the number that's not spoken about enough, but is probably like one of the most meaningful, is that when you go into that program as a researcher, you get almost like pushed out to go and talk to customers like industry. And I saw a number like six months ago and something like 27,000 conversations with industry and end users have been facilitated through that program. Like when you think about it, Those are conversations that never might have happened and you don't know where those conversations are going to lead to, but all of a sudden researchers and industry and end users are talking and they're better understanding needs and wants and requirements and limitations and they're able to, you know, have longer relationships into the future that might lead to something. Like some of those metrics of success, I think we're going to benefit from those for a long time. So that program, you've mentioned a lot of sort of inputs that number of people who've gone through the program, number of scientists who've gone through various programs, but the outputs are still, as you also say, a little bit hard to measure at this point. Just in terms of the longevity, at what point do you look back on that program and say, well, it had the cultural impact that it was intended to have internally, but then delivered the literal commercial or social impact that it was also meant to have yeah look that's hard so if we think about i don't want to get too theoretical on you so tell me to move on if i do yeah that's right when you think about you know there's a lot of a lot of theory around how systems change and that you need to have like if you look at diffusions of innovation you need to get to kind of 16 percent of a population who have taken on something new for the system to realize, oh, this is something worth doing, and then everybody else starts to do it, right? There's a lot more to it than that, but it's kind of that 16%-ish mark. There's something like 100,000 researchers in this country, you know, give or take a few thousand probably. And the ON program has interacted with, my guess is like 3,000 of them or something, right? And so it's still a very small percentage of a very large number, even though like 3,000 is quite a big number in its own right. And so there is this requirement to how do we increase the scope of it. And so ON can't do it all, and that's why it's great to see other unis and other organisations are stepping up and also running their own programs and doing a lot of this. And like there's some great programs happening at places like Uni Newcastle, and lots of other unis are doing similar things. And so once we get a few more, a few more thousand, like that kind of 15,000, 16,000 researchers in the country who have been through a program and understand the process of commercialisation a bit better, then I think that's when we start to see this 
kind of organic change of culture. And so, you know, not every researcher wants to do it, but if they understand the process of it, it doesn't matter if you're trying to build a widget, just simply knowing how to talk to an end user is going to make you a better researcher, right? You know, it just does. And so I think that's an important metric we've got to keep in mind in terms of building longevity of the change that we might be trying to create. But, you know, the other ones around jobs created and funds raised are kind of dumb metrics, but important metrics to give us an indicator of, well, are we having some success if if VCs are investing in it or if we're making jobs that we can then measure on impact on the economy? There are some kind of more nuanced ones that I think we've probably got to spend a bit of time thinking about so that we can get better at talking about, well, why should the government be spending money on a program like this as opposed to spending it on, I don't know, something else like investing it into schools or healthcare? And part of the reason is that this program is solving not just the problems that these researchers today are trying to solve, but it gives them knowledge and experience that in five years' time, they're then able to do this again. And so even if they're not successful this time, maybe five, ten years later, they will be successful. And it's almost going to be impossible for us to track that. That's part of this process of almost back to that UniQuest thing. It's kind of having the opportunity to fail to give people the opportunities to succeed. So get them in this type of program give them an opportunity to try something, they learn from it. Even if they're not successful, they're much more likely to be successful in the future. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it is very fascinating. And I guess one of the things also to Uniquest, you've got to kind of stay the course on some of these programs as far as they do take time to build. I'm speaking to David Ireland, co-founder and director at The Growth Drivers, digging deep, well, not that deep, into your uh, LinkedIn profile. You're a Stanford University Fulbright Fellow, and obviously that work that you did on innovation systems through your PhD. So the Australian innovation ecosystem has changed dramatically, right, in the last decade, certainly. So since you've been looking at this stuff, what are the big levers that have changed? Like, what are the things that you've actually looked at and gone, oh, like, this is dramatically different now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I think one of the... um the obvious ones is like I think back to the late noughties or whatever we call them. Yeah, there was almost no venture capital in the country. I can't remember the numbers, but it wasn't very much. And then you look at what we've got today, and you've got Blackbird with well over a billion dollars. You got Main Sequence with over a billion dollars now. You got Square Peg. Like there's so much venture capital money sitting in this country. Still less per capita than what we have in other countries, but. Like in comparison to where we were 10 years ago, like that's a few orders of magnitude more than what we've had. And I think that's a tremendous outcome for this country. And it's not just the dollars, but it's the fact that we've got investors who are more willing to take on the risk profile of investing in early stage technology businesses. And that's what we've always had the money. We've always had superannuation funds in this country, but yeah, they wanted to invest in bridges and roads and whatever else it is that superannuation companies invest in, not the early stuff. But they are now, right? And so super is coming into venture capital and venture capitalists are deploying that money. And so I think that's really great. The other thing that is probably less spoken about, but I think is really important when you read anything or look at anything around why are places like Silicon Valley successful, it's that you've got all of these people who have been through the system and have been successful or have learned at least, and then come back in as mentors or they do it again, or they come back in as investors. And we're getting that, like that flywheel is starting to spin where We've got people who have built companies like Canva or Atlassian or whatever it is, right? And then they, they've got their money or they've got their experiences and now they're coming back in as venture capitalists or angel investors or mentors or just general 
guides to the new entrepreneurs that are stepping into the system and are looking for support. And, you know, that flywheel starts to spin up. And I think that's when, as an innovation ecosystem, that's when we really start to see a real big improvement in like the quality of stuff that's coming out. So I think that's great. And I think government is gradually learning around how do they continue to support innovation. I think they've still got programs like the R&D tax incentive, which are great. They're trying new things. This National Reconstruction Fund, like there are some big things that are starting to come along that are providing long-term support for people trying to do inherently very risky stuff that just need help to do it. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple of things about, well, firstly, let's go to the US. So the Inflation Reduction Act is obviously a gigantic industry intervention program, effectively, which will globally distort the way markets work in some areas, I think it's fair to say. So just as an outsider looking in, I suppose, what has Australia's response to that look like so far? And, you know, I hear you on the National Reconstruction Fund, but would you expect to see a bigger role for interventionist policy? in industry yeah it's really tricky isn't it you know a lot of smarter people than i have tried to work this one out and i think part of the challenge is i think in australia we've never really been comfortable with picking winners there's been this notion of you know that's not what we do we just got to let the thousand flowers bloom and see which ones pop up but i feel like we miss a trick when we take that you know you kind of have to do it because innovation can come from anywhere but You also need to make some bets on places that are strategically important that we have some competitive advantages in. So we have this huge agricultural sector. We have this massive mining sector. We have this really incredible growing quantum industry and renewable energy sector. And so I think there are areas where we have these natural advantages that it makes sense for the government to be a bit more interventionist in those and to help those sectors grow because let's double down on the competitive advantages that we've got. I think there are some other interesting ones too that people don't necessarily talk about very much. Like when you think about the size of Australia and the variety of climate conditions and industries that we've got, we're actually a really interesting sandbox for pretty much every other market in the world, right? Like if you're trying to trial new technologies or products in different types of environments, and I don't think we leverage that as much either. So I think there is space for the government to be a bit more interventionist in terms of, I don't even like saying the words, like picking winners, like trying to pick sectors that we should be focusing on because we are too small. We just can't compete on breadth and depth that somebody like the US can. We're just much, much smaller. So pick where we have capability and where we really need to be world leading in and kind of focusing on that, I would have thought would have made sense. Yeah, I guess uh, there is certainly still an element of risk aversion within government. I mean, you could try and pick winners in a couple of different areas. If one of them fails and fails big, does that lose your government? Okay, let me ask you this also on the US. The path of startups or startup people or entrepreneurs, very much a well-worn path to San Francisco or to the US more broadly, and not so much to the North, to ASEAN and Asian partners or partners based in Asia. So, I mean, I take your point about the flywheel of all these people returning to Australia. Our venture capital generally, you know, the stuff that's not generated internally also from the US. How do we engage more with our immediate region? What does that look like now? Yeah, it is getting better. We are seeing, like I'm seeing more investors from Asia participating down in Australia and whether that's through venture funds having relationships up in Asia and kind of pulling them down or whether it's 
people with money up in our kind of immediate neighbor, northern neighborhoods, you know, seeing new opportunities down in Australia and wanting to participate in it. And I think whether there's been some policy change or some enabling policy that's made that happen a bit easier, I, I don't know. But, you know, there's plenty of money there. And I think we have a lot that we could offer investors up there. I think just the challenge for a lot of investors is that, you know, you do want to be able to see and catch up and walk the floors of the people and the businesses that you invest in. And it, it is that bit harder when you're out of the country. That's why a lot of businesses, you know, when they do get money from a, a US venture fund, they end up moving to the US so they can be closer to the action. Uh, I invested in a business years ago and, you know, they raised money in the US and now they're based over in Houston and they're doing really well, but they kind of had to go there because their investor said, well, we need you to be based here now. And so I think there is that risk if we do that. But I think partly that just adds the challenge back into Australia that says, well, why should businesses stay there? And so the R&D tax incentive is a really good reason for businesses to stay based in Australia so they can continue to access that scheme. But it's got to be more than that. And I think having research institutions like universities and CSRO and others who are kind of tuned into helping these businesses come up with new technologies and new research that can help them be more competitive in the global market and be really easy to work with is, again, like another reason why an investor might say, yeah, sure, you should stay in Sydney. That makes plenty of sense. Or if there's some interesting other economic incentives or kind of reasons for you might be there, I think that's the role that government should be thinking about is what are some of those other reasons that we can create for investors, doesn't matter where they are in the world, they don't then take our cool Australian companies once they invest in them and make them move to wherever they are. Yeah, I guess that's been a perennial problem or issue. So maybe that's a high class problem because a lot of these people end up coming back. And as you say, that flywheel's really going. Yeah, they do. Okay, look, I'm going to finish on this, David Island from the Growth Drivers. You've obviously picked quite a few winners in your time. Certainly, worked in lots of different areas. So renewable energy, public health, ESG, agriculture, aquaculture, financial services. These are areas where you've applied knowledge transfer or your entrepreneurship skills. So what's interesting to you right now? Given your expertise, what are you kind of focused right in on? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I mean, there is some cracking stuff coming out in the quantum space, you know, quantum technologies. There's some great companies doing some stuff around sensors. I'm not participating in those because it's a bit outside my skill set. Not to say that I wouldn't, I just haven't found one that I, I feel like I can add to. The area that I've still got a, a really strong interest in is around how do we help transition to a more renewable energy future. And I've done a lot of work around helping businesses and, and residents get access to renewable energy, either through really interesting solar and battery technologies and access to green power and that was a bit of a business model process and that was really good. But I think the bit that's missing, and, and you know, there are great companies doing stuff around hydrogen and new energy storage technologies, and I think that's super exciting. But the bit for me that I think is really missing is there's a big kind of behavior change component to this as well. And it's hard for people to change their behavior when they can't see what they're doing, right? And so you don't know the emissions that you're creating at the moment. You don't know where your energy is coming from. You don't know the intensity. It's just hard to see that stuff. So I think there are some real big opportunities to help even outside of the solar and the battery and the hydrogen stuff. There are some really big need for solutions at the moment to support people like you and me just to make better decisions around how we engage with energy. One of the guys I work with talks about like we get taught from a very young age 
you know, when you brush your teeth, you turn the tap off. And when you leave the bathroom or the kitchen or whatever, you don't leave the tap running until you come back, right? But we do that all the time with light. You know, like you walk out really comfortably and you're basically leaving the energy tap on. But we don't think about it like that. And so how do we make this data more obvious for people so that this behavior change is just easier for people to engage with? And so that's something I'm pretty passionate about. And we're trying to create some really interesting solutions to help drive some of that. That's one area that I think is pretty exciting. Probably the other area that I've seen some really interesting technologies lately is the new form of education and it's VR enabled. And I think like where it creates really immersive environments for us to learn in. And there's some really great businesses that are taking that type of technology into different industry verticals. And I think that's going to create some really amazing opportunities for us to build workers with the capabilities and the skills that we need them to have to help us do all of the new things that we're going to need to do in the future with new technologies. And that might be either in agriculture where we need to teach people how to use drones who have never used a drone before. It could be in healthcare where we need to teach people how to do really difficult surgeries. You know, it's not like you can just practice a surgery on somebody. So how do you do that? And like that's happening in lots of verticals. I think that's really exciting. And so I'm getting involved in some of that at the moment too. So. All right, there's a lot going on. I do like this idea of a real-time dashboard of some kind that's telling me exactly where my energy's come from. It could help you with decisions ranging from whether or not to holiday in Positano or Bangandore. Exactly. Or, you know, how much it costs me to use an AI-generated image compared to something else. So, uh, yeah, I think that sounds really interesting. Okay, David Ireland, thank you so much for joining me on the Commercial Disco. Thanks for having me, James. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.